You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information on any of the topics you hear today, or to learn more about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. So, good morning. My name is Bill Taylor. I'm the Executive Vice President here at the United States Institute of Peace, and it's my great pleasure um, to welcome you to, to uh, PeaceCon 2018. This is uh, uh, something that we've been looking forward to all year since last PeaceCon, um, and this is an especially exciting one uh, for us. The Institute of Peace is very pleased, honored uh, to be able to host uh, the first day of, of PeaceCon. Uh, in partnership with the Alliance for Peacebuilding. So it is, uh, and it's a great day here um, that we'll have. The Institute of Peace uh, is convinced that peace is possible. Uh, we're convinced that peace is practical and it's important for US national security and security of our, of our allies. Um, and I say possible, uh, several of us got back from Afghanistan last week. Um, and many in this room, many in this city, many around the world think Afghanistan is not possible. Peace is not possible. Well, it is. I, you know, we came away um, with some sense uh, that there may be an opportunity here. The, the stars might be aligning uh, for some discussion uh, uh, between the government of Afghanistan and the Taliban, with the Americans playing a role. Um, and none of those, none of those pieces were in place before, and now they are in place. We also visited Islamabad and. Uh, Pakistanis have said, you finally understood what we've been saying all along, and that is you have to have these conversations. So peace is possible. It's possible in hard places. It's possible in other places around the world. So this is what the theme here of uh, the Institute of Peace has. Uh, again, great opportunity for us to have you all in the building. We're glad to have General Zinni and Tom Stahl, Rob Berg, the rest of you who have come from some far places and near um, to be a part of this, this here today. It is my great pleasure uh, to introduce Liz Hume, who needs no introduction to this group. Uh, Liz is the CEO, we talked about the title here, the CEO running the Alliance for Peace Building. Uh, and uh, and Rob, will, Rob will guide us on, uh, on, on all of this. But it is a great a ple pleasure for me and a privilege to introduce Liz. So please kick us off, Liz. Thank you. Please. <laughs> acting CEO, but. <laughs> so good morning and thank you, Bill. Um, on behalf of the Alliance for Peacebuilding and our generous sponsors, I want to thank everybody to PeaceCon 2018. If you want to expand the conversation on social media, please use the hashtag PeaceCon2018. We are incredibly thankful for our wonderful partnership with USIP. This is the seventh year that we've been partnering on this conference. Um, so many people at USIP have been working uh, hard to put this together today. I especially want to thank Tina Hagedorn, who <laughs> has been working very diff a lot with us, and her she's on speed dial with us. Um, so thank you, Tina. Um, I also want to thank the AFP staff. It's a team effort. They have been working tirelessly. This is a phenomenal program. If you see them, thank them. I really want to thank Adam Wolf. I know he's probably still outside. I, I can't thank him enough for his work and the whole AFP team, and I'm, I'm sure they're out there, but please um, thank them when you see them. It's a sobering time in the world. I don't need to tell anybody um, that's sitting in this room about the statistics 
We are at a 25-year peak in terms of global conflict. Um, it's a sobering time for the field, for the world. Um, this is a challenge to our field. Uh, the world needs bold and courageous peace builders now more than ever. But there are challenges that we have to overcome in order to advance the field. There are a couple of bright spots. We'll hear about them today. Um, the US government, a lot of new frameworks um, at our high-level panel with the UN. Um, and those are all great. But it will really be focusing on implementation. But they could really change the, the fundamental way that violent conflict and prevention is addressed. Uh, one uh, really important piece of legislation that I would like to point out that AFP and Mercy Corps um, has been leading a coalition on is the Global Fragility and Violence Reduction Act. We encourage you to get involved. Um, and please talk to Laura Strahmeyer um, from AFP who is working on it. Two key challenges I see. We have not made the case for the field and we have not proven impact. And until we do those two things, we will not advance the field. We struggle to show evidence. So this lack of evidence, I believe, is one of the greatest challenges. If we believe that what we do is important and our work is effective, then we have to show impact. We had a solutions forum here yesterday led by our amazing director of learning and evaluation, Jessica, um, who is standing right there. Um, she worked very closely with Joe Hewitt's team here at USIP. It was a phenomenal success, and we encourage people to get involved. Um, also, it was uh, uh, sponsored by One Earth Future Foundation as well. Um, but we also have to move forward collectively. As a field, we have not done a great job at making the case for peace building. We need to work collectively to inspire more people to act. Um, AFP, with some of its partners, Search for Common Ground, International Alert, GPAC, Conciliation Resources, um, is working together to form a peacebuilding coalition to um, inject peacebuilding in the mainstream media, into policy. You will hear more about it as the conference goes on. We encourage you to join us as well. I would like to say one thing that we did do is we had the initial success of introducing the word peace building into the dictionary. So hopefully, very soon, when you type peace building, you won't see that little squiggly line underneath. So, <laughs> so I wanna challenge everybody here um, to work on these issues to advance the field. And I, I wanna thank everybody that's here for your time, your commitment, your passion. Without it, um, this conference also couldn't happen as well. I hope you'll find these next couple days inspiring. I have a couple of housekeeping uh, things that I have to go over with you. The conference app. We have come into the 21st century. Um, please go to EventMobi if you haven't already downloaded it. Um, and it will be your essential tool throughout the few days. Um, so go to EventMobi. The password is PeaceCon2018. It's in the program. If I can do it, you can all do it. Trust me. I'm very technologically challenged. Um, so we will also be doing a data collection project this year. Um, again, moving into the 21st century. Um, you can give normal feedback, uh, instant feedback on 
sessions. You can download and decide where you want to go. You can see somebody's bio. We're saving trees. It's all fantastic. Um, so we'll be sending you notifications on your conference app, to and please complete a short survey by 2 p.m. today. Once you do that, you'll be registered for some prizes. We'll announce at the end of the day. So with that, I want to thank, finally, AFP's board members and our incredible board chair, Bob Berg, who will be introducing General Zinni. Thank you all. Good morning, excellencies and colleagues. Thank you so much for participating in this wonderful event. And we're particularly pleased to greet uh, Ambassador Nimaga of Mali, a country we have focused on for years in one of our 24 affinity groups, um, a group uh, marvelously led by our esteemed uh, President Emeritus Chick Dumbuck, and whose participation included uh, frequent uh, in participation by the now current uh, uh, foreign minister of Mali, and she's doing a fine job. We also want to give a special welcome to Ambassador Tekla Berahan of Ethiopia. Uh, in this, his country has been seeking peace in very wonderful ways, and uh, they have just established a new cabinet uh, gender equal, a minister of defense who's a woman, and a woman who is now going to head their brand new ministry of peace. That's terrific. Um, and I want to add a word uh, about uh, yesterday's meeting. Uh, I have very yellowed credentials as founding, in evaluation, as founding chair of uh, the OECD DAC evaluation group. Uh, and I was thrilled to see people from around the world, young people with really vibrant, fabulous ideas and programs and accomplishments in learning and evaluation. And I want to thank uh, Jessica for organizing yesterday's Terrific Solutions. Jessica Baumgartner-Zuzik, uh, she did this despite a very recent uh, tragic family loss. And uh, Jessica, you're my hero. Thanks so much. The board of the Alliance for Peacebuilding includes a number of stars, uh, key uh, CEOs of member organizations and, and several others, including uh, retired Marine Major General Charlie Bolton. Charlie is beloved by his colleagues in the military, respected by the four space crews that he uh, captained, and um, highly regarded by the 25,000 employees at NASA, an organization that he directed for the eight years of the Obama administration. I asked him one time how he became such a respected and effective leader, and particularly how he became a respected military leader who searched for peace. Uh, his answer, two-word answer, was Tony Zinni. General Zinni rose to head Central Command, in my view, the most difficult assignment in the U.S. military. And he has important things to say about peace and peacekeeping, his topic today. 
My mantra is that peace and security require each other. So our understanding of each other and finding common ground with each other is not just nice, it is essential. If we want peace to endure, we have to have uh, protective security. And if protective security uh, uh, has a framework, it must be peace. I'm particularly pleased to ask you to join me in warmly welcoming four-star General Anthony Zinni. Thank you. I know uh, when you hear general, you think, I'm going to talk about the military aspects, and my focus is on the security dimension, and maybe just that. But I've had a very unusual career in the military, and <laughs> I've spent a lot of time in the other dimensions involved in what we're here to discuss uh, today at the conference. Uh, somehow, along the way in my military career, I ended up in, involved in peace mediation work. Uh, and I spent a long time while still on active duty doing that. I, I owed it all, I think, to uh, Ambassador Bob Oakley, those of you that may uh, know of him or, or know him. He passed away, unfortunately, not that long ago. But he taught me a lot about how to open a dialogue, how to conduct mediation and facilitation, and to look at the long-term ways we try to stabilize environments that are destabilized and, 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 and that need some sort of long-range assistance on the political and diplomatic and, and other dimensions that really don't involve security and humanitarian work. Uh, for some reason, that stuck. And I've done things like uh, I headed up the U.S. Uh, mission in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I've been involved in uh, the Philippines, actually through USIP. Uh, through the Henri Dinant Center and a number of other NGOs. I've worked the mediation processes in Indonesia, in Africa, uh, and elsewhere. I'm currently doing work for the State Department right now and trying to resolve the rift between Qatar and, and the Arab Quartet. So I've seen that dimension of it, where we try to stabilize things politically, and in some ways when we use that effort to try to prevent things from uh, degrading into a, a violent confrontation or a humanitarian disaster. I've also worked on the humanitarian side, too. And I've worked with a lot of NGOs doing humanitarian work, most of it in how the military can contribute to that, and trying to do it within the framework of the way our NGOs operate so we understand that we don't have this clash of cultures and we don't get involved in uh, where the military goes its own way and it tries to dip into humanitarian missions and uh, doesn't get it right because they don't understand what the requirements are, the methodology, what's sustainable, and all that. Uh, when Charlie Bolden worked for me, uh, when I was the commander of 1st Marine Expeditionary Force, we found ourselves involved in a, a, a great deal or a great number of humanitarian, peacekeeping, peace enforcement kinds of missions. About the time the Soviet Union collapsed, it seemed like these kinds of missions just grew. And we found the military now trying to understand how better to deal with them. And we got into naming these things as low-intensity conflict, military operations other than war. We came up with a plethora of names that we tried to uh, work with. It became clear to us that we're thrown into these kinds of missions that we needed to find a way to bring all the elements together, especially when we're involved in hybrid or complex missions where there's a security dimension, there's a humanitarian dimension, and there's some sort of political diplomatic dimension, and, and then eventually it's some sort of stabilization effort. 
uh, we started in the Marine Corps, uh, an ex we called it an exercise. It was called Emerald Express. Some of you may have participated in it. We ran it in California. It was not really a military exercise. It was trying to bring together all those that were involved in these times of uh, kinds of missions, uh, including our allies, obviously our interagency components here in, in the U.S. government, uh, NGOs and others, to try to work through how can we work better together? How can we find a way that we cooperate in these environments and do better? Now, I'm going to make a prediction. At the end of this conference, you'll probably come to some conclusions or recommendations. You're probably, from your own experience, going to talk about some things we haven't gotten right. We've been at this thing for decades in trying to understand it. I can predict when the next sort of peace enforcement, peacekeeping, major humanitarian mission, complex, hybrid, whatever, we will relearn the same lessons. We will come together and tell us, you know, we, we should find a way to coordinate better. We should find a way to cooperate better. We should find a way to communicate better. That when we get together, we don't understand each other. You know, uh, I, you know when, when that Lance Corporal with all his combat gear meets that uh, young uh, NGO out there trying to do humanitarian work, I can tell you there's a cultural difference. There's a basic misunderstanding of, of each other's missions. Even though both intend and want to make this thing work and are committed to it, they're going to come at it from a different direction. And they shouldn't be meeting on a battlefield. You know, to use a military term. I would tell you the same thing as if, if we tried in a military operation to suddenly meet each other at different military functions on a battlefield without having planned or having exercised or having had worked together or having had a structure that we worked under, it would be a disaster. Yet we're going to keep repeating those same lessons. We're going to find out that we need to plan together. There's some way we need to be able to understand when we get in this environment, what are, what are our roles? How do we complement each other? What do we do best? How do we support or reinforce each other? We shouldn't be asking those questions when we arrive at the scene of the crime. We should have been asking those questions ahead of time. If you know the military at all and had any experience with the military, we are planning fools. We plan everything. We got a planning process that will water your eyes. I mean, it's unbelievable. We do not like doing things where people that are working with us do not have that same kind of process. You know, they can't get into that level of details. Of course, we have gigantic planning staffs. You know, we have uh, gigantic support systems that allow us to gather that information, to process it. We have gigantic uh, decision-making structures and processes. And so when others come to join us that don't have all that, how do you meld that? How do you make it work? How do we begin ahead of time? A lot of the talk here will be about prevention. How do you prevent without planning? And we're going to relearn that lesson also. We're going to learn about our missions and how our missions will differ. And worst of all, how our missions are going to change. And one of the, we have a term in the military about mission creep. You go on to it, you get involved in a situation, committed to it, we get very uh, detailed missions and task statements. Once you're on the battlefield, once you're in this environment, those missions may not be relevant. We have a sort of a tradition, especially in the U.S. military, in that we kind of let the missions be what they're going to be. And sometimes this frustrates our, 
our senior leadership in that our missions creep and we end up doing things that we weren't sent there to do because we see a need or a requirement and we get deeper involved. One of the problems the military runs into, the, the whole situation becomes dependent upon the military. I was in Somalia, I, I did three tours of duty in Somalia. The first one when I went in, we were told that we were just going there for about two weeks just to provide security on the ground because obviously the NGOs and others trying to provide humanitarian assistance now could not move because the warlords, the militias, the gangs were robbing them, stopping them, and we were very limited, short period of time, go in, freeze the situation, provide security, ensure the flow of these uh, resources, and then somebody would take over from us. Well, we landed, we did in less than three weeks had covered the entire area in Somalia we were responsible for. These resources were flowing, and we asked the question, and then what? We learned that there wasn't this magic organizational force coming in after us. And I realized this about three days into the operation when I get told there were a number of Somali, quote, intellectuals that wanted to see me. And I met with them. They were ac former academics and uh, businessmen and others. And they were putting their finger in my face and saying, when are you going to start the jobs program here? And I said, jobs program? You know, uh, I look at my mission and tasks. I didn't see jobs program as one of those military tasks. But it made me realize we had now, to use Secretary Colin Powell's description, the pottery barn example, you break it, you own it. I would say, to paraphrase that, you touch it, you own it. And so we owned it. And we ended up getting more and more deeply involved. We ended up running the police force, uh, trying to reestablish the government, working with Ambassador Oakley to try to get the warlords to uh, uh, cooperate and come to the table. But our mission went far beyond the simple mission of security. And so missions could creep. And when missions creep, we could end up getting into somebody else's business, too. And in a way, with the military where we don't fully understand that business, even though it may be well-intentioned and, and we want to help. What do we do about funding? Who pays for all this stuff? When we get committed in the military, you know, it comes out of our military budget. Nobody at Congress is saying, here's a pot of money to do humanitarian and peacekeeping work. And so those funds come out of our operating funds. And so when we are committed to these missions, those people in the military that are doing these things are not doing the training and education and other functions what their primary responsibilities are. Not to tell you that the military doesn't like these operations. I will tell you from my experience as a commander, when our troops are on the ground doing these things, I think their morale is, is higher than any, at any other time, especially if they can see right in front of them the benefit of what they do. And I have tons of video that show this, and it, it brings this uh, home, that this is an important part, I think, of the missions the military has, because I think it balances out the other more horrible missions that we have to perform at times. And so this is not anything the military rejects, it's just something that it costs in terms of funding, it costs in terms of training time and other things, so we have to appreciate that, that kind of uh, commitment and that kind of trade-off that we get. The military often gets stuck with, a, with that kind of mission. I did an assessment in Iraq and Afghanistan after I retired for the uh, generals out there 
And when I went around looking at how, the, you know, from soup to nuts, how everything was working, down onto the ground, at the district level, patrolling with the soldiers and Marines, I realized how much that the military had taken on that were non-military tasks, you know, where, where people in uniform were doing things because obviously we're the 800-pound gorilla in the room. We have the people, we have the structure, we have the logistics, but the things they were doing were non-military. So I walk in and I meet with the anti-corruption task force. And the entire task force, with one exception, were military people that I knew. What the hell do you, you know about uh, anti-corruption at the government level? No, this is OJT for them. You know, where is Treasury? You know, where is State Department? Not that they aren't committed out there, but again, do they have the numbers? Do they have the ability to meet the requirements? Uh, do they have the capacity? And so we end up then with this mismatch that comes across, and we end up, especially from the military side, with people committed to doing things that they don't necessarily have the expertise in, in many ways. We overcame some of that in Somalia, where we provided the military support, but uh, people like Ambassador Bob Oakley provided the oversight. So we understood what we were doing. We were at least under somebody's direction who understood how we interacted with the warlords and others in, in, in the dialogue that was created. When we deal with the media, we have different approaches to that. You know, we come with a, a big uh, public affairs section, there's a media interaction. Uh, those other members that are, that are out there on the, on the, in the same environment may not have that capacity. How are we telling people how the mission is going? How we're determining where we are? How we tell each other's stories, or we tell a collective story in some way? And how do we organize for this? You know, the military organizes and structures for a mission. We task organize. But there are these other elements that are, that are in the same place that are carrying on a function. How do these organizations connect? Now, we have jerry-rigged a lot of things. I know when we first went into uh, northern Iraq to, to uh, protect the Kurds and to get them down out of the hills in Turkey and back home, you know, our initial reaction was, how do we interact with these NGOs? How do we connect to them? How do we communicate? How do we coordinate? We took our civil affairs organization. We created the first CMOC, Civil Military Operations Center, designed to do this. You know, civil affairs was created like in the aftermath of war to deal with the civilian casualties and uh, civilians that are displaced or whatever. But now it had a much different role. At that time, we were creating one. Now it's become commonplace, but it was to interact with NGOs, you know, private volunteer organizations, international organizations, the United Nations. And as we learned that, we tried to employ it in the future, but it was never structured to be that way. This is something that was created, you know, on the scene. And the other part that, that I've learned, especially from the mediation uh, part of this, is how do we understand what we're involved in? One of the things I learned in peace mediation, I finally did an, uh, nine of these things, and I went off and got a, a master's degree in, in mediation and uh, dispute resolution and negotiations, uh, because I, I, I felt there were people out there that knew tactics and techniques and procedures and processes and theories on this that uh, I was trying to learn on the ground, working with NGOs and working with uh, the UN and others. But how do we you know, find a way to make sure that we bring these together, that we are all on the same sheet of music, that we understand how we each operate? Now, it's easy for me to end here and say, these are all the problems, these are all the lessons learned, and you'll mull it over in, in each of these groups, and at the end of this conference, we'll list all these same ones, 
The next time we go out and engage, we will come back and we'll list these again. So I'm going to give you a proposed solution. And it's going to be radical. And a lot of people re will object to it. But it's to get your brain fired up, get you pissed off so maybe you think outside the box. <laughs> I'm going to say we need to create an interagency command. And I hate to use that word command because I don't mean it to be military. We in the military should contribute our uh, civil affairs organization, our peacekeeping institute, the investments we make in exercises like uh, Emerald Express. And we should create this much like we do our military commands, our regional uh, combatant commands uh, that have components, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, and, and are regionally focused. Central Command, Pacific Command, European Command. This organization would be interagency. It would have a State Department component. It would have a USAID component. It would be able to interact with NGOs. It might even have a representation from NGO organizations in it. It is not meant to be directive in nature. By that, I mean it isn't taking the place of State Department or the military. It is just a means of organization, training, coordination, planning. It is a deployable entity. So if you go into an Iraq or an Afghanistan, you're not trying to scratch your head and saying, we need something beyond the military. Because guess what? Once the Republican Guard's defeated, the Pottery Barn comes into play. I have a grandson that's banned from the Pottery Barn, so I understand the concept. <laughs> you break this, you want it. And suddenly we're scratching our head in Baghdad and Kabul and saying, now what? This organization would have the now what answer. It's not going to be a pickup team like CPA or ORHA or whatever we throw together at the last minute. With people unfamiliar with the situation that understand, as I learned through the mediation process, the need for research. The excellent NGOs we have out there that provide some of that research. Matter of fact, U.S. Institute of Peace is one of them. I know when we did the uh, mediation work in the Philippines, the background information, the research that we came here to get to bone us up on what we needed to know was exceptional. But we need to really come away with some hard recommendations. You can't come away with relearning the same lessons. You have to say we need a structure for this. We need to fund it. We need to train. We need to plan for these things. We need to focus these things on parts of the world where we most likely employ them. And so from somebody that has seen this from every angle in the, in, in the hybrid complex, whatever you want to call it, organization, I'm telling you, we've never glued it together. We have the parts, and the parts are represented in this room. And don't walk away from the conference without an idea as to how to move to those decision points. How do we structure this thing? How are we going to fund it? Who should? How do we interact uh, with others uh, you know, from a U.S. perspective? How do we train, organize, plan? I mean, that's the key. It's not to repeat lessons learned. Thank you. Thank you, General Zinni. So now I have the pleasure of introducing Tom Stahl. Uh, his bio is in the app. Um, I'm sure many of you know him. He's the counselor at USAID. He has served the majority of his 30 years um, in this field, working overseas in conflict-affected and fragile states, Sudan, Kenya, Ethiopia, Iraq, Lebanon. Um, I had the pleasure of meeting him in Ethiopia 
in about 2009, I was running a conflict uh, governance program in Ethiopia. My husband had the uh, pleasure of working directly for him at USAID. And I asked him, what would you say about Tom Stahl, since you work directly for him? He said, tell everybody he's an expert in so many sectors in this field, and he is phenomenal to work for. So I just want to warmly welcome Tom Stahl and say thank you so much. Thanks very much, Liz. And uh, it's great to be here. Thank you all for coming and for inviting me. It's uh, a tough act to follow to come in behind uh, General Zini, but uh, I'm really glad to be here and uh, be able to talk to you. I'll uh, talk about a couple of things. I know I've been asked to speak a little bit about the transformation that's going on at USAID that's going to affect our support for the work of peace building and conflict prevention. And you have more speakers I see on your schedule uh, later today and tomorrow to get into the details. But let me talk a little bit about what we're doing. It's, it's early in the process, of course, for me to be able to go into a lot of detail. For one thing, we haven't figured out all the details yet. And of course, there's a lot of work to be done, including getting congressional approval. Our proposal is, is up in front of Congress right now. And then uh, we've got to get all the lawyers and the unions and everything uh, uh, on board. But as we work our way through this very large undertaking, I do want to emphasize that the transformation has always been intended to be a genuinely collaborative process between the agency, the staff, and our many partners uh, like you all. And so it can truly be said that the impact on your work will consist to a great degree on what you want it to be. And I hope you'll take that to heart and reach out and engage with our staff make your ideas and concerns known. Whatever other faults we may have, we don't presume to have all the answers. Now you ask, might ask why we're going to all this trouble in the first place to take on this huge reorganization of USAID. That's a fair question. Well, the easy, simple answer is that OMB told us to. Uh, but of course, it's more than that. Uh, the world has changed a lot over the last couple decades uh, in the time that I've been working for USAID. The majority of countries where we work today are considered fragile or vulnerable to conflict. And that means both staff and development gains are more or less perpetually at risk to some degree. And our current structure aimed at addressing conflict and instability was essentially designed in a sort of an ad hoc manner over the last number of years. So that structure does not enable staff to effectively coordinate peace building efforts even within USAID to say nothing of in the interagency as uh, General Zinni was talking about or to fully implement the stabilization assistance review that uh, came out recently in June. So in very concrete terms, our current structure was never intended to cope with a world that has 70 million displaced persons, the most since World War II, or a world where disasters that we face are overwhelmingly man-made. So what I can tell you about the transformation is first that since I was asked to address this specifically, the key element of what we call effective partnering and procurement reform is uh, the, the, the key element of it is known as the New Partners Initiative. And uh, it's something that you should uh, look into. It'll be kicked off with an early demonstration project spearheaded by what is now the Dacha Bureau that you all know and love, 
Bureau for Democracy, Conflict, and Humanitarian Assistance. It's aimed at mobilizing new and underutilized partners and resources and identifying effective program models for a proposed Bureau for Conflict Prevention and Stabilization. Like just about everything we do at USAID, it's designed to help our partner countries progress along the road to self-reliance. And it will incorporate our new country-specific roadmaps, uh, which many of you have probably heard about by now. And by the way, you can view all the roadmaps now on our website. Uh, there's 130-some countries uh, on there. And these nifty roadmap tools are designed to provide a clear understanding of where individual countries fall on the development spectrum using independent data, not USAID data, independent data to broadly evaluate their levels of commitment to self-reliance and capacity for getting there, commitment and capacity. Now, we've always believed that every nation's circumstances are unique. The roadmaps help us to do a better job of actually treating them that way. I strongly encourage you to check them out and make good use of them. But back to the matter of hand, Here, here's what else I can tell you about the transformation, especially with that aspect of it, you know, focusing on conflict and, and violent extremism. So the proposed new Bureau for Conflict Prevention and Stabilization, or CPS, we've got to have an acronym like the military, we have our own acronyms. Uh, it would create a standalone but interconnected team to focus on the non-humanitarian aspects of a crisis and provide the agency with a holistic crisis response capability. This new bureau will give us the capability to support vulnerable countries before, during, and after a crisis. Now that's not something we really have right now. The idea is to improve our conflict early warning analysis and make our peace building programming more flexible, more nimble, more of a priority more field focused. So this new CPS Bureau would incorporate the current offices that many of you know, the Office of uh, Conflict Mitigation and Management, CMM, Transition Initiatives, OTI, CivMil Cooperation, and the Countering Violent Extremism Coordinator, along with some parts of our, uh, what we call, the Program Policy and Management uh, Office of DACHA. And then CPS would serve as the US government's technical lead on conflict and violent prevention, and the implementation of political transition and stabilization programs in countries that are important to US national security as laid out in the uh, Stabilization Assistance Review. And we believe this will result in improved civilian military coordination and communication and collaboration. And uh, CPS would also manage the, another one that you probably all know well, the Complex Crises Fund. And then while the Democracy, Human Rights, and Governance Center is being elevated and moved to a new technical assistance bureau, technical support bureau in, in USAID under this proposed reorganization, the Conflict Prevention and Stabilization, CPS Bureau, would retain a core of DRG staff who focus on human rights and governance issues in fragile states that are prone to violence. And then we're also proposing, as you well know, a new Humanitarian Assistance Bureau bringing together the Office of Food for Peace and Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance to build upon the world's best, most effective humanitarian assistance force and make it even better and more integrated. And then this HA Bureau would then be linked with the CPS Bureau under a new Associate Administrator to make sure that we maintain that linkage between the, you know, the pure humanitarian aspects and then the conflict 
prevention and response aspects of the crises. Now I could stand here and run through a list of all the various other bureaucratic changes, but uh, frankly, we don't, you don't, you're probably not all that interested. Uh, you'll get into it in more detail uh, throughout the day and tomorrow, and they're available on our website. Suffice to say that a lot of very smart people, and mostly career staff, have put a great deal of thought into making USAID more functionally aligned, more field-oriented. But I hope that gives you a sense of the shape of things to come. But now, if you'll indulge me, I'd also like to take this opportunity to make a bit of a pitch about what I have long felt to be among the greatest challenges to the art of peace building and conflict uh, mitigation. I'm sure I don't have to convince an audience like this that there's more to helping a country stand on its own two feet than just economic development in the traditional sense, or transparency in government, or even democracy. I'm talking about something foundational, something one of the real basic building blocks of civilization itself, the kind of primordial human force that when neglected can wreak havoc among everything from nation states to high schools and all the way to our living rooms. And I'm sure you've already figured out I'm talking about, of course, teenage boys. Okay, sorry to get a little melodramatic on you there, but in all seriousness, there is a direct and well-documented link between a society's ability to provide purpose and direction for its young men and that society's level of peace, stability, and standard of living. Popular culture is full of lamentation over the state of young men in America, not just teenagers, of course, but well into adulthood, living on couches in their parents' basements, playing video games all day, so on. You've heard the story. It's a real problem. It's hardly limited to the United States. Nor is it by any means a new problem. In fact, way back in 1935, the cultural anthropologist Margaret Mead, having studied social interaction among students at Columbia University and all the way out to Papua New Guinea, declared famously that the recurrent problem of civilization is to define the male role satisfactorily enough so that the male may, in the course of his life, reach a solid sense of irreversible achievement. In other words, every society must grapple with the issue of what do we do with our young men. For centuries, tribal societies have wrestled with this challenge all the way back to the ancient Spartans and beyond. And that's under the best of circumstances. When you add in an environment of political oppression, injustice, police brutality, with a serious lack of economic opportunity, or even healthy activities to be involved in, you've got a recipe for disaster. The kind of slow rolling disaster that we see playing out today in places like the Northern Triangle of Central America where an epidemic of gang violence is driving massive out-migration. And Sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East where extremist groups find fertile soil for recruiting among large populations of young men with few prospects for better life. I know that a great deal of your and our development programming relates to empowering women and girls, and rightly so. There remain massive historic injustices across the globe that hold back societies by holding back the female half of the population in those societies from exercising, in some cases, even the most basic human rights. This is a vast and tragic waste of human potential to say nothing of injustice. The single most effective and important key to achieving lasting development is to empower women and girls. No question about it. But as important a focus on girls is for development, when you're talking about the challenges of conflict and peacemaking, 
in any given context, it's no secret that you're more likely to be talking about the boys than the girls. Research increasingly shows young men around the world today feeling aimless and adrift, bewildered by a rapid cultural change and what they mean for their roles in society, even deeply traditional societies. They lack a sense of purpose and belonging. The result is a distressing pattern I've noted time and again in a wide range of US foreign policy discussions that I've been involved in. In fact, I can't tell you how many times I've found myself the, the lonely advocate of addressing root causes in a room full of consensus that the best solution to the problem boils down to simply killing more bad guys. And of course, they're all guys. And there are situations where that may unfortunately be the case. But as no less an authority than the US military consistently testifies even before Congress, wouldn't it be better for everyone involved if we put more of our emphasis on building peace than on buying more bullets? Self-reliant countries are not only more prosperous and free and resilient, they are countries that place a priority on engaging young people and addressing their unique needs, and in the process, reducing the lure of crime and drugs and violent extremism. Traditional mores for helping with this issue are breaking down. And if we don't address them, I'm afraid that many of our efforts will amount to houses built upon sand. Simply put, if we don't give our boys something healthy to do, a purpose, a sense of belonging, there are others who will. And that's not likely to be healthy for anyone. So our enhanced focus on conflict prevention in USAID will work to get young men involved in their local community, including directly in peacemaking along with the women who are obviously critical as part of it. We'll work to address corruption and human rights abuses, other forms of injustice which young people, young men and women often see as preventing them from achieving their goals. And we'll work to establish sports clubs, IT centers, etc., supporting civil society organizations to provide avenues for young men to get that necessary sense of belonging. I don't have all the answers. But it would be remiss if I didn't take advantage of this opportunity to challenge you, my captive audience of peacemakers, to, take, to make this a priority in your daily efforts and over the next couple of days to make the world a better and safer place. Thank you very much. So I just want to say thank you so much. That was very powerful. And I, I just can't thank you enough for coming and speaking to us, General Zinni and Tom Stahl. Tom, you raised a lot of um, points about new transformation at USAID and a lot of new frameworks. Um, and those are important, but they're not the only ones. And so for the next um, high-level panel that we are going to have here, um, I'd like to invite our next panelists to come up um, that are sitting in this row here. Um, the panel is titled Global Policy Frameworks on Sustaining Peace, a Call for Collaboration and Collective Action. Again, you'll be hearing that collaborative and collective language a lot in the next couple of days. Um, so I, please feel free to come on up. Um, I want to thank uh, a few people who really worked hard to put this panel together that are not here today. Corinne Graff from USAIP, from U sorry, USIP, Malika Joseph from GPAC, and Richard Ponzio from the Stimson Center. One of the key pieces about 
whether it's the transformation process at USG, uh, at the US government, or a lot of the different frameworks that we're gonna be talking about, or the Global Fragility and Violence Reduction Act, or the SAR, is really focusing on how do they all interrelate and implementation. So I think that's gonna be a big theme of this panel. Um, and I just would like to introduce now Gary Malante um, from CIPRI, who will moderate this panel. Thank you very much. Can you hear me? Ah, there we go. Thank you very much. Thanks very much to the United States Institute for Peace and the Alliance for Peace Building for having us today, for having this conversation. This discussion is the confluence of, I think it was four or five organizations that said we need to have this conversation at the AFP. And so we put in proposals. AFP said all of you are thinking about this, so we need to be able to put this together into a conversation. And eventually it became this panel. Um, so we all think it's important. Um, I'm going to briefly introduce the speakers, then I'm going to tell you the ground rules for this conversation because I want to keep us on time. Then uh, we have a timekeeper. Where is Sam? Sam. Sam. Sam is right there. So uh, I'm going to say the rules. Sam is going to keep track of the time. When you see him start waving at you, you're out of time. When you see him stand up and start throwing things at you, you're going to stop talking. Um, and. In a moment, I'll get into the substance, why we're here and why we're talking about this. But I, I want to reflect also on the fact that we're talking about, we've already talked about US policy, US frameworks. Those, I think those were great interventions to start us off here today. Now we're talking about global policies and kind of global frameworks, some of them coming from New York and the UN, some of which are things we're engaging with globally um, that transcend uh, any kind of agency or institution or ownership. Um, but I think what we have to also acknowledge and realize when we're sitting here talking, I know m many of the people up here will speak to it, is that this is still a very Western, Northern conversation that's happening about these frameworks and how they actually reach the ground where peace needs to be built. And so I very much encourage you to reflect on that in your conversations, and I'll, I'll explain in a minute what our format's gonna be, but also you to have a dialogue here, to challenge us a little bit and say, okay, well, how do we make this these frameworks real in the world where peace has to be built on the ground and where people need to own the peace that is being built. The counterparts there. I noticed uh, earlier we mentioned that the ambassadors are here from uh, Mali and Ethiopia. I will give you the first opportunity to respond if you have particular interventions or, or uh, responses when we get to question and answer. So I encourage you to think uh, about those and then we will come back to that. First, let me introduce everybody. We have Katie Thompson here, the team leader at the United Nations Development Programming uh, Program. I will not go into your entire title. Uh, all of these people are very Googleable, and you can uh, find out all of their interesting bios and profiles. We have Larry Atry here is the head of policy at Safer World. Uh, Ro Tucci is the director of inclusive societies at the United States Institute of Peace here. Darren L. Rodriguez is the executive director at GPAC, the Global Partnership for Prevention of Armed Conflict. And David Stephen is the Associate Director at Center on International Cooperation, CIC, in New York University. I've asked them to sit in this order because in a moment, I will go to them and they will have two minutes each to say uh, their first round of these are the frameworks they are working with, that they're engaging with, and they are using for peace building. Uh, and they, they're gonna, this is gonna, they're also gonna place those in the kind of global context of peace building. This is where we are in these conversations for these frameworks. That's gonna be the first round. 
We're going to go through to David, and then I'm going to come back again to Katie, and we're going to have a second round. They'll get three minutes each, so luxurious three minutes each, to talk about where they are implementing these frameworks on the ground, where they're doing this, um, and what the specific cases, where are the examples where we see this happening? This goes back to the question about evidence. Where do we see this actually happening? How are these frameworks being used for peace building in these environments, in these contexts? That'll be the second three-minute three intervention. If we do that all right, and we're all on time, Sam keeps us honest, then we have time to come out to you for questions. And I ask you to please ask short, specific questions, because there will be a lot, and that way we have time to be able to respond in here, and we'll target the questions. Not everybody will be responding to all questions. Briefly, about frameworks. Frameworks are extraordinarily useful. I think uh, General Zinni has already set us up with this. He said, the army plans everything. And you have this fantastic quote from Eisenhower that said, the plan is nothing, but planning is everything. And that's where I want to connect frameworks into this conversation. We have a number of these frameworks. I'm going to go through them in a minute, just so that they don't have to in their two, limited two minutes. But a number of these frameworks where we are thinking conceptually about how to organize many different actors, many stakeholders, many different agencies and institutions, and all of the kind of global architecture that we have arrayed to be able to help us to build peace in these environments. All of those frameworks are intended to give us a kind of common language. That's one of the principles, one of the effects of it. But they also give us common principles so that we know when somebody else is invoking one of those frameworks, they, we think they mean the same thing. We think they are trying to achieve the same thing. So those embody the principles. And in many of these cases, they are the roadmaps for us to be able to achieve things. I'll get into that in a moment. But a roadmap, again, is a plan. It is how we are intending to try to achieve outcomes, right? So the frameworks are the planning that is everything. We know when we encounter the real world with all of our frameworks and all of the intentions that we have that they don't end up being exactly what we intended. But the idea with the frameworks, remember, is that we are agreeing on some language, we are agreeing on some principles, we are agreeing on how we will do some things, how we will interact and engage with each other, so that when we get to the ground, we don't have to have that conversation in the battlefield, or in the humanitarian field, or in the development field, where we are all busy doing all the things we need to do. <laughs> Hopefully, these frameworks are tools for us to be able to get common understanding in advance. So that's what this conversation is about. How can we use them for collaboration? I'm going to go through quickly, very quickly, a few of the frameworks that will be mentioned here, just so that they're on the table already, and you don't have to spend your time defining them and introducing them, and we, we skip the education part of it. If you want to Google any of these, I guarantee that these terms are very Googleable, and they will uh, educate you about them. There was a report. Uh, Last year, the year before, that was the Pathways for Peace report that was done by the UN and the World Bank. I would attach that underneath the rubric of the prevention agenda. The prevention agenda is a framework. The way of thinking about how prevention is done in the UN World Bank Pathways for Peace report is a framework. There's two. The Sustaining Peace Agenda had two, two dual resolutions at the United Nations. Together, that's called the Sustaining Peace Agenda. It is linked to the Prevention Agenda. Not exactly the same. There's some dif differences in language, mostly because it's a member state's activity versus a, uh, a research activity by the UN, UN World Bank report. Then, that's another framework. 
Then there's the Sustainable Development Goals, another framework, a roadmap for how we achieve the kind of sustainable development we would like to achieve by 2030. Within the Sustainable Development Goals, there are 17 of them, uh, 169 targets, 232 indicators. Uh, within that, there is SDG 16, Peace, Justice, and Inclusive Institutions, Inclusive Governance. Though that SDGs is a framework. That's a way for understanding a roadmap for how we achieve development collectively together. Then there's SDG 16 plus, which is something that has been conceived upon to say that peace, justice, and inclusive governance are bigger than just what is listed in SDG 16. It spills over into other SDGs as well. David will get a little bit into that, but I wanted to put it out on the table. That's a different framework, and there are documents and uh, lots of information out there available for that. Then, something else you should know is that in the course of the Sustainable Development Goal process, every year there's a high-level political forum on a few of the different SDGs. There will be one in 2019 in July, and then a General Assembly meeting that follows that. And in this one, this year, SDG 16 is being reviewed. This is where member states come and voluntarily report on their progress on this. But it makes this a particularly <coughs> important, interesting, uh, pivotal year for setting the baseline on how we're doing on peace and knowing whether we're gonna make progress to 2030. And then uh, there's an entire initiative called the Pathfinders Initiative that David will speak a little bit about as well. That's 40 different pilot countries that are themselves uh, volunteering to say they will volunteer on uh, peace, justice, and inclusive governance. But there are other frameworks we could easy, just as easily talk about the stabilization agenda, including the uh, incarnation of it here in the United States. Um, we could talk, and a framework itself is the Global Fragility and Violence Reduction Act. Um, there is another framework that has led us to here, which is the Busan framework, the New Deal, the International Dialogue. That was a framework that got us to here based on the Paris principles. And then these roadmaps that we've just been talking about from USAID. They themselves are frameworks, like post-conflict needs assessments, all these other things. Those are all frameworks. They are ways for us to get to common understanding of what it is we're doing. I just want to put them all out there so now we're all on the same page. You don't have to spend time talking about them. Um, and we can talk about what ones are the ones that are important to us, where do we see them fitting into the global architecture right now, and that's what our first question is about. So now I'm going to hand over to Katie, and you'll have two minutes and you can reflect on that. Thank you, thank you. Can I spend two minutes arguing with you about your hierarchy of frameworks? No, okay. So hi everybody, it's really nice to be here. I work at UN Development Program. I think I'm the representative of the UN system here, but I will speak, obviously what I will talk about is more an orientation around how development practitioners engage in peace building or conflict prevention. And to highlight that, I mean, clearly for us, the key framework is the Agenda 2030, which is the Sustainable Development Goal Agenda. The reason why, and uh, this is the point about hierarchies, is this is uh, an intergovernmental document. It's owned by all member states. It's universal. Um, and it can be calibrated and made context specific. Some of our, um, the ways in which we are advocating around the goal 16 and 16 plus that you're going to hear about are key for those of us who are focused on peace building to make the SDG agenda live um, in terms of conflict prevention. 
Um, but it's, it's very crucial and very critical that it's um, understood that this is our basic framework because it's nationally owned and it's universal. Uh, one that wasn't mentioned is the sustaining peace resolutions, um, which, I'm sorry, that was mentioned, but perhaps uh, it, it, it can be understood, if you like, as, an in, as, a, as the UN's linkage of the development community with the peace-building community. Um, it's, it's important in the sense that it's brought peace-builders, um, in terms of member states, to the, to the idea that peace-building is long-term and that it's very much rooted in Agenda 2030, and it's sort of reframed those conversations in that dimension. Um, and that's been very useful for development practitioners. The third one that I want to highlight, um, which is the one that wasn't mentioned, is the Secretary General's uh, prevention plan, which is for the UN actors and entities obviously very important because it's really the command piece. It's about directing our resources and our focus on prevention, uh, beyond conflict prevention, but addressing all forms of risk. I'm done. <laughs> Okay, um, is that working? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, thanks for bringing us uh, together to talk about this important topic today. Um, uh, from my side, I think, I mean, we have to uh, welcome and support and get behind the efforts on sustaining peace that are uh, a push to bring peace back into the center of what the UN's all about and the reforms that are taking place there. I think the Pathways for Peace uh, effort that was mentioned is also, you know, a, a, a really uh, a good process that's brought home some really important messages about priorities and partnerships to the banks, to the UN. But I really uh, do think that the Sustainable Development Goals, and particularly the commitments around Goal 16 and, and related targets, are the biggest factor in our favor as a community and the tool that we have uh, a big opportunity to work with. And I say that because I think, you know, Goal 16 and the other targets were constructed out of a real reflection on what are the biggest drivers of conflict worldwide. It's a vision of positive peace. It was genuinely consultative in the way it was put together, but then signed off by all uh, world leaders. Um, and it's also this really important bridge between the peace community and the rights development actors, um, governance actors, and between governments around the world on a common vision that they can uh, own and, and, and understand each other on. I think, you know, thinking of the theory of change that you have to work with, with the sustainable development goals, you know, whether it's that it's a chance for countries to shine in comparison with each other, it's uh, an entry point for fresh dialogue on the issues that matter on the ground, whether it's a prompt to measure the things that matter and see uh, prevention challenges in new ways, uh, whether it's a prompt for governments to hear feedback from their citizens, there are all these different ways in which the SDGs is a tool for pushing for change, uh, which I think we can really use. I do, while I've got the floor also, though, want to sort of strike a note of challenge, coming back to what Liz said about the, the, the world we're in right now. Um, we have commitments to things like the Arms Trade Treaty, uh, but we see defense expenditure at uh, a high in the post-Cold World e era. Uh, we see autocratization um, taking its grip not just in places like Russia or Turkey, but in uh, Brazil, in India, even here at home in the, in the US. 
Um, there are big, big challenges in the way governments are behaving right now and the way they're shredding the commitments to global conflict prevention norms which we've painstakingly constructed. So we have to be dynamic in responding to that. We can't fiddle while Rome burns as a peace-building community where the framework is a tool, we have to use it, but we also have to think outside the box where the framework isn't touching the people who are changing the world for the worse right now. Thank you. Great, thank you. Um, at USIP, we're utilizing and developing a number of the concepts uh, within these frameworks, um, and whether that's being adaptive and people-centered, addressing the short-term while investing in the long-term, uh, supporting integrated strategy planning and programming, uh, and of course, um, uh, advancing inclusion and building cohesion at every stage of resolving conflict. And I want to take a, a minute on that last one, since uh, that's the field that I work most closely in. So the example, when I think of these frameworks, I think they're most helpful in guiding our efforts to pursue what I work on, which is inclusive peace processes. And we know that, that these uh, peace processes are critical moments in time where we can really redefine uh, relationships and, and address the root causes of conflict. And so when I talk about inclusive peace processes or broadening participation in the peace processes, we're certainly talking about women youth, civil society, religious actors, but we're also talking about how to widen uh, citizen engagement and armed group actors in these processes, and that's at all levels of, of a peace process, of a multi-track peace process. And I raise this because I think the frameworks, what they help us do is make the case for creating this ecosystem, right? This ecosystem where there's multiple players brought into the process and are contributing to the solutions. A process they, they ultimately will have a shared responsibility in supporting and, and most likely implementing. So I, I this is really the concept of, of a people-centered um, that you see in, in a lot of these frameworks. So what does that mean for what USIP is doing? Um, we're, we're focusing more uh, attention and resources towards developing research and practices on track 1.5, track 2, track 3, um, looking at um, uh, grassroots organizing and, and collective action and the role that that plays in peace processes. The last point that I want to make is that USIP, along with many of the partners in this room, were well positioned um, to seed and test many of these concepts on the ground and to help operationalize and refine these frameworks. So for inclusion, what we're doing is we're fleshing out some critical questions such as who, who may resist broadening participation? Why and how? How do we manage and navigate around that resistance? What are the new pockets of occlusion we are creating, right? I, I mean the new pockets of exclusion that we are creating with inclusion. And how can we mitigate those consequences? And finally, how could we advance social inclusion towards social cohesion? So that means helping to create safe spaces to voice differences and build bridges across divides um, so that we can address tensions long into the future. Well, thanks. Uh, well, first of all, I wanted to uh, link sort of like the broad theme of this conference, the power of collective action to our conversations. Because when we're talking about the frameworks, we're talking about how can these frameworks <coughs> help us mobilize collective action in order to build this global architecture. So I think we should start with a question. And uh, this question is, is the peace building community actually worldwide being mobilized by these frameworks? Or are these frameworks contributing to the mobilization of the peace building community in order to move towards implementation of this agenda? 
Uh, I think that the answer is twofold. On one hand, yes. And I remember when we were discussing on where the, the whole uh, agenda SDGs were being discussed, that we had a huge mobilization of the peace building community, and we're all behind that. And we said, we have to get this peace goal, and we strategize, and we got it. And I think that was, there was a huge sense of accomplishment from our communities, like, we got this peace goal. But the question is, like, we have this, we have this goal. Now what? We have goal 16. Now what do we do with this? And we had this question uh, actually in, in our community in GPAC, and we said, okay, what, what do you want to do with this at the regional uh, level where our network members are working? It's like, what does this mean to you at the regional level? Help us uh, think, what do you want to do with this uh, SDG framework? And for us, the answer was a bit uh, not what we expected because we saw that these frameworks actually were not getting the traction that we thought or the energy that we were having here in these discussions at the country level. So these frameworks, or, 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 or no, they didn't really help that mobilization or that we expected that they, that would, they would have. So I think we should answer our, uh, we should ask ourselves why. You know? Why are these uh, frameworks maybe not bringing that effect that we thought it would bring at the field level with peace building organizations, you know, with organizations that are working at the grassroots level. And I think uh, in general, uh, we can talk about two things. First, lack of understanding of what these frameworks are. I was listening to, to Gary and I was getting confused with all these different frameworks and, and I work on this uh, <laughs> almost every day. So it's like, so there's this lack of understanding. It's like, okay, yeah, but what does this mean for me? And uh, the second uh, part of it is like, of, is, is this lack of understanding causing or, or generating kind of like framework fatigue for our people <laughs> in the ground working on trying to implement these frameworks? Uh, and I think we have to think about, or, or and I'll come that in my uh, three minutes because I already see my uh, uh, warning. Uh, to me, my not even two second warning, but uh, my time is done. But uh, hopefully, think about reflect how how uh, we're trying to overcome this and show the relevance of these frameworks and how we can actually work on this and how this can act as as a blueprint that can help us uh, participate in this global peace building architecture. Thank you. Um, so I too work on the sustainable development goals. Um, I help run the Pathfinders for peaceful, just and inclusive societies. And it was set up precisely to answer this question, a question put to us by a finance minister from a conflict affected state who'd fought very hard for these goals in a bitter and difficult negotiation and said, now we've got them, we've got no idea what to do with them. So the Pathfinders is really about trying to make some sense out of these targets. We do work with the SDG 16 plus um, targets, so 36 targets from across the agenda that directly talk about peace, justice and inclusion and go deep into the other, um, other goals. And one of the things that the Pathfinders did as a group of member states and other partners is put together a roadmap for what implementation um, looked like. And I, I, I have a copy here, I have a few other copies. And it's an attempt to explain how we start to turn this into, into action. Now, as Gary said, we're in a critical year this year. In, in, the, uh, in the summer, in July, ministers gather to review SDG 16, also SDG 10 on inequality. In uh, the September, heads of state and heads of government, leaders, prime ministers, presidents come together and they've been asked to look at all 17 SDGs and to mobilize further actions to accelerate implementation. So this is the year really for us to focus on, on those actions, on those solutions, the kind of solutions that were being discussed yesterday and that I hear being discussed in about a thousand different uh, conversations like this one. 
It's a time for acceleration to show that we really are turning it into action. And we really have to have a bigger mobilization around, around these issues. We're not, I don't think we're asking the grassroots to work on targets. We're asking them to work on issues and challenges, but we're trying to use the targets as a common strategic language, a common strategic framework that can bind these efforts together and make them the whole, the greater than, than the sum of the parts. For this audience, I point to one particular headline target, SDG 16.1, that's a target that says we must significantly reduce all forms of violence everywhere. And that, that is a target that I think we need to start taking seriously. We need to use it to bind together five different prevention communities, the folks working on conflict, the folks working on urban and youth violence, really uh, um, responding to the problems, so to the, the question of uh, young men that was uh, raised earlier, the folks working on interpersonal violence, including women and children, the prevention of human rights abuses and mass atrocities, and the prevention of violent extremism. We need to bring all of those together around SDG 16.1 and really mobilize in the next year to show that societies can work towards quantified reductions in, uh, quantified reductions in violence and quantified increases in peace. Thanks. So, very quick introductions. Thank you very much for keeping on time. To sum it up, we have all of these frameworks. We don't see necessarily the traction on the ground where the rubber hits the road in the countries um, in the societies, in the people that own the peace, whether it's our counterparts from our own agencies, whether it's the national counterparts, whether it's the NGOs and civil society there, whether it's the spoilers, all of the stakeholders. We're gonna go back to them in a moment. They're gonna say these are uh, what we see happening on the ground. This is where these frameworks actually touch peace that is being built in these particular contexts. And we're gonna use those as examples for the discussion. How do we know that we see these frameworks being useful. But I think these are good challenges. From Darnell, he reminded us that we have framework fatigue. There's a lot of frameworks. Sometimes people on the ground say, is it just cut and paste? Should I just find and replace all the terms that said prevention and call it now sustaining peace? Um, we have all of these parts. As General Zinni said before, we have all of these parts that we're trying to put together. And then the question is, can we come up with solutions that work for all contexts? Do we need to tailor them for specific contexts? Um, and then, of course, uh, Larry reminded us of the global context that we're working in. How do we actually fit uh, what we're trying to do and all of the action and energy that we have into having effect on the ground? So now, Katie, we come back to you. And you have three minutes, a luxurious three minutes. So I think I have four because I was the only one who obeyed the rules, but anyway. Uh, so, um, so I'm kind of provoked also by what some of the colleagues have said, so I'm going to go a bit off what I plan to say, which is, um, you know, obviously coming at this, I, I was originally somebody who might have classified themselves as a sort of post-conflict practitioner who moved into development approaches because I sincerely believed and still do that working strongly uh, to promote national ownership, uh, which includes not just governments, but all, all uh, parts of society, is the only way to achieve change, and that bringing exe executive powers to situations you know, has a very limited impact. So I, w I do really want to flag why um, the SDGs is important, and why 
the word development is important in all of that, and it's not simply because I work for the UN Development Programme. It's because it symbolizes something about the approach, which is very different from the approach which perhaps many of you um, use or work with in your daily work. I went quickly through the agenda here and saw barely anyone having the title uh, with the word development existing in any of the organizations that are here, which I find very interesting. So forgive me, um, you know, if, if I'm saying something that's obvious to all of you, but de the development discipline is largely populated globally by economists still. And so converting economists and planners and finance experts to the ideas of good governance and the ideas that are embedded in 16 plus is not an overnight transition. It's work, it's hard work. Um, and I'm not cynical about the fact that this doesn't get off the ground overnight. I'm very positive, actually, about what is happening across the globe with the caveat of the points made by my colleague from Safer World. Um, in terms of our work, what we're seeing increasingly accepted at national level in countries where it may not normally be uh, expected, that combining uh, work on peace and development is increasingly seen as the norm as opposed to the exception. It's not restricted to post-conflict context, it's regarded as a preventive measure. And the UN has a lot more traction in achieving that these days than it did in 2004. I think that's largely due to the SDGs. I think it's really been helped by the World Bank study in that providing some substantive underpinnings for that. And I think that's incredibly positive. So, for example, in 2004, we were managed to deploy, under very difficult circumstances, five peace and development advisors in the field working for the UN resident coordinators who were the head of the UN at country level. And, and these days we have 49, covering 70 plus countries without much political challenge to those deployments or their work with governments. I think that's incredibly positive. It, it reaches the point where it's difficult to find people with the right skill set to do that work. Um, and they work with small teams of national officers. They work with uh, volunteers, both national and international. I think it's an incredibly positive change. Um, in addition to that, I'm going to take my extra minute. Um, in addition to that, um, you know, what those people are doing, and I didn't mean to dwell on them, but I, I am dwelling on them to show that you can achieve change. Obviously, what they're doing is working with the national authorities in order to ensure that within SDG planning frameworks, these elements of 16 plus are taken into account. And that's going to take time. It's not going to happen overnight. Development plans are four to five years long, sometimes 10 years long. It's going to take time to work cross ministries to bring about these changes. Um, part of the work that we've been doing, David referenced it, is to really put governments who want to show some leadership at the center of these conversations so they can show quite concretely how a Ministry of Justice can work with a national human rights institution, can work with a Ministry of Finance to ensure that access to justice is pro promoted in rural communities and also ensuring that NGOs are at the table and civil society groups are there to impact on the quality and the extent of that service provision. There are governments doing that work. Final thing, because then, because I'm abusing my time now, is, so that's all of the positive side and I think that this is part of what we're trying to do at country level. Um, in the UN system. But goal 16 isn't a given at any moment in any large intergovernmental setting such as the General Assembly. These pro, um, what, what's been 
uh, progressed can also be undone. And it's particularly important to work with these national partners, especially national governments in the global south, to speak to this agenda. And I'm sorry that I speak here rather than one of my national counterparts, because it's those voices who will carry this agenda. Um, it, isn't, it isn't going to be um, the countries of the global north who have traditionally supported this agenda. So that's, I think, where our focus of our work should be in the next year. And I, I'm sure that David will pick that up as we go forward. Thank you, Katie, so much for the rules-based international order uh, <laughs> time limits. Anyway, I'll try and uh, do my duty. Uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, I, s I struck a note of challenge uh, in my first uh, sort of opening there. But, I mean, I think, and I think, you know, we have to be mindful. Civicus has told us we're in a world where 109 countries have uh, completely shut or repressed or obstructed civil society space. This is the majority of member states. This is the world we're in. Um, but I think it's tremendously important to be tapping into uh, also the civic activism that is rising up and pushing for change in dynamic ways in, in countries all over the world, whether we're looking at uh, South Korea or the Gambia or Romania or Ethiopia, and uh, to nourish that. Um, Within uh, Safer Worlds, uh, we've developed a model for trying to use and localize and operationalize SDG 16 plus uh, commitments uh, where we find that they can be a tool for doing things. And I think it's really leading to some exciting results. So in Somaliland, the last couple of years, we've been engaging with uh, civil society organizations who've come together, formed a platform for acting on goal 16, and they've been engaging with the authorities. We've seen legislation passed on fe female genital mutilation, on women's political participation. Uh, the Chief Justice and a lot of judges across Somaliland coming together thinking, how can they work towards a vision for access to justice that really identifies many of the challenges uh, in uh, that context and, and does something about them. I think another example, and it's more nascent, but it's really important, is in Sudan we found it's possible to get together civil society and government officials to talk face-to-face -face about Goal 16 issues around justice, security, governance for the first time. And I think people there are very appreciative of the opportunity to actually sit and discuss frankly with government officials there for the first time on some of these things in, in what's been a very close uh, space. Um, so uh, these are some of the ways in which we can use this to push for the kind of conversations and changes we need to see. Um, what we've developed as, as a sort of model for using the framework to build that broad ownership that you were talking about is, um, you know, really an effort to contextualize things. So start by understanding the context. Uh, find a way to uh, create space for dialogue, to identify with civil society, with national authorities, what are the relevant problems uh, in a particular context. Um, set out national priorities um, and develop the partnerships, not just with government, but civil society, universities, business people, to take action in locally relevant uh, ways. Um, try uh, and, and, and identify champions on the ground and mobilize them. Also, find ways to build on existing foundations. What are people already doing? How can their efforts be sort of highlighted, nourished, uh, sustained, rather than creating something new? Help people also to use the framework to strengthen accountability through monitoring. 
um, uh, and the indicators to get civil society involved in holding their governments to account. Um, and then connect these national level, eff level efforts with the global so that people are aware, they're giving praise where it's due to change on the ground. Um, and, and the other thing I think to sustain these efforts, we need to formalize them into uh, processes for working together that guarantee inclusion, that have some rules around it without bureaucratizing and creating this kind of problem of isomorphic mimicry which we see so much sort of in the development sector as a kind of creating a kind of malaise. Um, so that's the model that we've sort of working at uh, with Safer World. Um, and um, yeah, I think it's something we're quite excited about and I think it reflects a lot of the other work that's being done by the likes of GPAC and the Pathfinders and UNDP uh, to try and take action with this framework. So Katie, I have the reverse story. I came from USAID in the development space um, for a number of years and now working in the peace building space. And we had our own challenges uh, in the development space of getting other development sectors to understand the importance of good governance, so education and, and health. So it's a, it's a common challenge all around. Um, you know, the, the example, the two examples that I was going to give, one project, one, one program, uh, the project is actually quite similar to Larry's, so I won't dwell too much on it, but it is this concept of, of integrating um, <coughs> justice and the justice and security fields. And so this is our justice and, and security dialogue program that's been operating in Nepal, Nigeria, Iraq, and the Sahel. Uh, and similar concepts as to what you described, uh, opportunity to create forums for dialogue, uh, to bring non-state actors into the problem-solving efforts, uh, and to address immediate <coughs> issues while also uh, building relationships to address conflict in the long term. So this seems to be a common model uh, that has been very effective in a number of places. Um, and these these are the recommendations that are in fact embedded. Uh, the the um, these elements that are embedded in this project are, are the recommendations from Pathways to Peace. Uh, and in the next iteration of this project, we'll also be helping the participants um, to, to apply a systems thinking approach to solving the challenges in their local area. So we're taking the next step uh, in enhancing that project. In a larger programmatic effort, one, of, one thing that USIP is putting a more concerted effort towards, and, and many of you might already know this, is towards uh, nonviolent action, which we believe can really be a transformative approach um, uh, within the peace building space. And it, it, I mention this approach because it's a real opportunity to materialize the visions that are set out in these frameworks, specifically SDG 16. Um, and all of the frameworks do emphasize the need to engage local, ac local actors, grassroots actors in, in one form or fashion, but the nonviolent action space really crystallizes it. Um, and, and we know that using an alternative to violence, nonviolent action is very effective in challenging injustices uh, and addressing longstanding grievances. So what we're doing, and I, I dare say it with Lisa right here, because she's been one of the uh, create co-creators in this effort, and there'll be many sessions on this throughout the conference, so I don't need to go into detail, but taking the tactics of peace building and the tactics of nonviolent action and seeing how they can be synergized, what is the interplay between those, and really giving the, the local actors a diverse range of options um, that they can work with to forge political and, and social change. Um, 
And so we've developed training around this, around this concept of synergizing peace building and nonviolent action. And, and it aims to help expand participation and build coalition, sequence and diversify uh, the use of tactics and of course remain disciplined and committed uh, to, to the nonviolent action uh, and message. The last thing I would say is I see my, my time's up. We're also rethinking conflict analysis, um, how we can use this analytical tool to accommodate the shifts in focus that we're seeing. Um, so to better account for multi-dimensional risk and the changing nature of conflict. We've just started that, so more to come there. Um, but let me leave it at that. Thank you. So for us at, at GPAC, we've been thinking, and again, going back to the question, okay, so what, what, so what? So we have this framework, so what? So what, we would, what do we do with them? And what, that, what do they mean for the work of our members, especially in the Global South? And uh, so we posed again this question, and, and, and again, the answer was, like, well, no, we don't really work on Goal 16, we don't really work on the SDGs, and we were like, what do you mean you don't work on Goal 16? No? And then we go back, isn't your work focused on reducing violence? No, it's in 16.1 about reducing all forms of violence. It's like, you work on that, Maybe you're not aware that you're working on that, but you are working on it, and that's the mission of your organization. So what we try to uh, uh, tell people is like, no, you're already working on this. And, and rather than seeing this as no, something that's coming from New York and is being imposed here, it's like, think about it, how can I use this for my work, the work that I'm already using? How is this useful for me and to uh, create some spaces for what I am already doing in the Philippines, in Liberia, etc. So that's what we're... Uh, how we're framing our, our approach to addressing uh, this issue. Uh, and then we have, of course, as NGO, limited capacities to do that. So from the global perspective, we're thinking not, okay, what can we do to create this, but what are others doing already to create this awareness? And how can we hook up our membership into what is already happening? So we, for example, uh, the World Federation of uh, United Nations Association, we're already doing some outreach about Goal 16, the 16 plus forum, et cetera. So rather than replicating and doing the same thing, we said, well, can we use your forum, what you're already doing? And then we sponsor some of our member organizations so that they know and they participate in these dynamics and then they can take it at their country level. So we're trying to connect the different initiatives that are happening about creating awareness and, and bring uh, civil society organizations from our network there. Uh, similar you know, with the, with the work you know, sustaining peace, the prevention agenda in general, which is our, our core business in GPAC, so we're trying to, again, connect. Now, what does this mean in the ground? So right now we are conducting a, a research from the civil society perspective. What does sustaining peace mean in Liberia for civil society organizations? How do you articulate that? And we're trying to work together, and we have, we're lucky enough to have this uh, prevention platform that has been developed with uh, the United Nations Department of Political Affairs and uh, um, coordinated, well, uh, coordinated together by GPAC and, uh, and uh, QNO, the Quaker United Nations Office, but that had brings a number of civil society organizations working on this issue, and we just, just create some space for discussion with the UN. What, how can we work together? And final, my final point before my time's up is the need to create these spaces for discussion. Discussion about the so what, so what do we do? The Pathways for Peace Report, for example, it brings a number of uh, findings about trends, you know, of what conflict is, uh, how conflict is developing right now, how uh, most conflicts right now are not, or uh, are among non-state actors, you know, versus other non-state actors. What does this mean for the practice of prevention? So what we try to do is to create those spaces and say, okay, we have this, very nice findings. It's, you know, it's like, what does this mean for your work, for our work? A civil society organization, but also convening other actors. 
So what we're trying to do is, and specifically with the Pathways for Peace report, is at the regional level convene these meetings with the authors of the report, with the regional organizations there, with civil society organizations there, saying, okay, look at these trends that the report is pointing out. Look at some of the recommendations, recommendations there. What does this mean for the practice of the African Union? And how can you work together with civil society on this? What does this mean for the, practic the practice of ASEAN? And, and how, what the, how can you create linkages for that? So we just had my colleague Malika here, she just came from a meeting that we had in uh, Bangkok around that conversation. And we're having this week, uh, tomorrow, actually, another conversation with the OAS. What does Pathways for Peace mean in the Americas? How can we work together? So essentially that creation of spaces and have that conversation and pose this so what question and what's coming up from here is what we're trying to do. Gary's running around. Um, I, I've actually, like Katie, scrapped what I was going to say. I just want to try and pull some themes together and um, test my timekeeper's patience by making six points about what I think successful communities working on these SDG 16 plus targets are doing. I think first, like Katie said, they're really taking advantage of the national ownership that's inherent in this, in this platform. Um, Katie and I were just both in Sierra Leone and there was a very big gathering around SDG 16 plus. Many countries from the regions, ministers really coming and thinking quite hard about how to take this, this forward. And we're, so we're seeing new types of conversation um, coming together. Secondly, they're bringing together a mix of national champions. Um, the MDGs had a very much north-south dynamic, but we're seeing quite different types of conversation uh, arising on this issue. So Argentina is doing a lot of work on justice, for instance, at the moment, based on its network of access to justice centers in the poorest uh, communities. And we saw some really interesting conversations between the minister, the deputy minister from Argentina on justice with her counterparts in the West Africa region um, last, last week. Third, they have a grip on their evidence, uh, and they're talking about solutions and not about problems. I was in a country um, that was described in the launch of the Pathways for Peace report in this room as a test case for prevention, and I saw through a two-day workshop the Planning Commission being bored to death by the SDG 16 plus targets until the, last, the second day when we actually started to talk Turkey about justice, about why young men were deeply disaffected and what to do about it. We weren't anymore talking about indicators and structures. We were really talking about what action looked like. Fourth, I think communities are beginning to articulate, to bring together those solutions and articulate them in a language that practical policymakers and people who have a martial money can understand. I would give an example of that, the, um, the, the people working on violence against children. There's roughly 25 countries now in the global partnership to end violence against children, and they're brought together around the INSPIRE package, seven strategies for ending violence against children, agreed by WHO, the World Bank, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a, there's a real attempt to create a framework <coughs> for implementation. Fifth, they have a long-term vision. They understand that it's going to take time to get this going, but they're determined to begin to start showing measurable change in the early in the early 2020s. Not everywhere, somewhere, but to demonstrate that change is possible to combat the fatalism that really is one of our most uh, um, serious problems. And sixth, they're part of this, um, I mean, they're, they're doing what Larry is saying, but almost in the opposite direction. They're part of the fight back narrative. They recognize that the politics are very difficult for many of these issues at the moment, that we have an opportunity through the SDGs and some of the other frameworks that we're talking about to build a new narrative, to make it practical, to turn it into action, to get national leadership, to get a diversity of countries working on that, and to begin to show that cha a, a different uh, vision, a different strategy, a different uh, future is possible. Under my three minutes. <laughs> that was incredible. 
Um, and he covered what I was going to do to wrap up, so we actually saved time. I would encourage people to start lining up at the microphones. I'll come to you in just a moment. Um, you're going to pass the microphones. If the ambassadors are here and they want to raise their hands, they could have the first crack at a question. I, I would second that, David. I think what's happening is people are seeing the 2030 agenda. They're seeing the value of it if they're active and agile on the ground, and they realize this is a way to be able to mobilize action. It is a common framework that people are using to be able to talk about it. They see the value of 2019 as a time to talk about baselines, how we're doing, and talk about what impact would look like. I think Roe brought up a really interesting point. We should, I want to reiterate it, that this is what SDGs, the overall framework of SDGs, and then SDG 16 and 16 plus give us is a way, a simple way to integrate systems thinking into very, very complex development work. Um, it is when you say systems thinking to people on the ground or anywhere, any kind of planning, uh, people say, oh, that's just too complicated. I can't get into everything, all the complexity of the world. If you say, here are a number of things that have been identified as the core parts of development, and they're in the 2030 agenda, that's, that's actionable. People can engage with that because these are real things that are happening. And I see the examples that you brought up where this is really happening on the ground. It's not just about whether you make a target or whether you actually make the progress that you said you were going to make. Some real signs of progress right now are just actors, ministers of planning, uh, civil society leaders, stakeholders saying, that's a good way to measure this. I understand now that if I use this indicator and I report regularly on in this indicator, that it helps me to understand better how the system is working, what it's producing, and how I can make that case to my constituents that we're actually making progress. So just engaging with it and using the language is itself evidence of uh, success on peace building. These are people engaging with a peace building framework that's built into the SDGs. Uh, we have, we're ready to go with questions. Perfect, thank you very much. Please uh, just introduce yourself quickly and then uh, question. Okay. Thank you very much. My name is Olumide, um, a student at George Washington University. Uh, my question is the, to the UCIP, United States Institute of Peace. Uh, you have released a report recently talking about the 2019 elections in Nigeria. Uh, some areas that are projected to be very, very uh, violent, like Lagos, Rivers, and Kano. And with respect to uh, grassroots um, strategies, I know you work a lot with uh, civil society organizations. What are you doing with, uh, with the politicians and the young people to avert this imminent violence? And I think that is the core of uh, the issues that we have in Nigeria right now. So I would like to know what you think we can do as young people to, have to avert the imminent violence in these areas that you have projected. Thank you. Is there another question that's queued up? Yes, please. Dane Smith. This is perhaps not uh, a question that's terribly on point with the panel, but I want to get it out there. We heard from General Zinni about the possibility of an interagency command. We heard from my esteemed friend Tom Stahl about a new Bureau of Conflict Prevention and Stabilization in USAID. What we didn't hear about was the State Department. Perhaps that is not a surprise during the Trump administration. But in any case, there has been a, what I would call a 10-year experiment with uh, what eventually became the Conflict Stabilization 
um, operation bureau at the State Department, which was designed to deal with conflict. And I wonder how that fits in with uh, this overall look at how we deal with conflict stabilization and peace building. We have another question right here. I'm Milt Lowenstein, and I fund various things for peace building. I'd like to ask Ms. Tucci. She said that the USIP offered uh, all presented alternatives to local people as to what they could do for peace. And I wonder if she really believes that USIP knows what their alternatives are better than they know themselves. Okay, uh, I identify yourself right now with hands. I'm gonna go with these questions right now. We'll get started and then we'll come back to the next round of questions. But make eye contact with the people that have the uh, microphones. I'll stay here so that the microphone can hear me. We had three questions. One was, um, we have an example. We know there's elections coming up. It's going to be difficult in Nigeria. Um, I guess one of the first questions I would have is, you know, practically speaking, are any of you working in Nigeria? But more broadly, can we generalize out of that? What do peace and development advisors, for example, do when they know that a, a, an election is coming up in the future? So Katie, we'll come to you. Uh, maybe, uh, Larry, you're making eye contact with me, so maybe you have something you want to reflect on on that. Um, <laughs> uh, we had a, a question, and I'm going to broaden it a little bit. Uh, you know, I think we could have lots of lunchtime conversations about the organization of the United States response to these issues. But, and then it, but I think it goes back to the question that General Zinni brought up to us before, and I think this is, I think it was a great challenge that he brought to us. You know, when, when uh, military folks and defense folks encounter the peace-building community, and I've, I've taught many courses within NATO on the comprehensive approach, they have this moment where they sit back and they step away from the table and they go, wait, there's nobody in charge? How, how do you do this? How do you do peace-building when there's nobody in charge? There's no structure to this. And we, generally, if you're a peace-builder, uh, and I am an economist, by the way, Katie, but an economist peace-builder, but we generally... Um, we're used to that. We know that what we need to do is go around when, and meet and build the coalition that is the people that are going to be working with us to be able to identify joint objectives and be able to deliver together. And we know that that has to be adaptive and it has to be very, very different in very different contexts. Um, and, that, and that it's not always the same person that's in the hierarchy or in the structure. So I think the challenge is not, you know, what are the specific parts? How is it being organized in the US government? How is it being? Those, those are all um, conversations that we can have. And you can also ask our UN colleagues and people in New York about what's happening with the UN architecture. That's, you could have long conversations about that. But I think more, more generally, for you to reflect on, Darren, I know you've thought about this, David, you've thought about this. Um, and Katie, I'm sure you've reflected on it. I'm not getting into the specifics of who reports to whom and how is this organized? What does the architecture look like? But more generally, how do we solve the problem of knowing that uh, we have multiple actors coming into these kinds of spaces? How do you solve this problem? You, you've, you've all worked in the field and you've all done this. How do you solve the problem of knowing there are multiple actors coming in these types of spaces? You have some people that have expectations of an extremely hierarchical system or this type of reporting, and there are other people that uh, don't have that expectation or don't work that way, and they need to be able to work very, very loosely 
they need to be adaptive and, and work with a variety of actors to find the constituency piece. So uh, I'll more broadly open that up that way, if I may. And then, um, and then the question, and I think it's a good challenge, and it's one that we had identified in, in setting out this panel, which was, are we, uh, and I'm, I'm, I guess I'm solving the question, in, or I'm, I'm answering the question and responding to it. Are we facilitators or are we people that are bringing solutions? In my view, we're facilitators. We are people that help people to have a conversation. And that's what I think the panelists meant when they talked about opening up the space for these discussions. That's why the SDG framework is a useful thing. We can create a space for people to be able to talk about common objectives that they would like. We're facilitators helping people. Uh, Robert Sigliano, I know he's here, is called a complexity coach. That's a fantastic job, right? We're helping people think through what their possible solutions would be, not coming with solutions to them. But maybe you all want to expand upon that a little bit more. So uh, we'll just come straight back down the line because there were questions for all three of you there, uh, all five of you. <laughs> Thanks, Gary. I definitely need a complexity coach. That's a good one. Um, so thank you for the question about Nigeria and youth. I want to preface the answer by saying um, I don't think that certainly, I don't think that I'm getting this, the question right vis-a-vis -vis how UNDP engages youth in peace-building conversations. Uh, and I don't want to speak, I, I can't speak for all of our offices because I think some of the offices are doing really good work on youth mobilization and working with youth groups. But I think in terms of <coughs> our theorizing and our ability to catalyze change of the nature that's been so well spelled out in the report that uh, Graham has done. I don't know if he's here. I, I, I think that, um, I think that um, we're not quite getting it right. So thank you for provoking the question. It's a really an important one. What I would hope to see happening in Nigeria is that um, the, the advisory capacity that sits in the UN office is working closely with coalitions and different coalitions, including youth coalitions and youth groups, to listen carefully to what is happening on the ground, both in the north and around the electoral process in general, in order to inform the decisions of political affairs, of human rights, of resident coordinator, and bring those messages back to government in a safe way. And uh, I hope that that is happening. Um, and I, and that is the very purpose of having those people deployed, is to enable those types of conversations to, and to empower locally mediated solutions between those, uh, on, those individuals and groups on the ground, local stakeholders who have a stake in the solution, a peaceful solution to the problem. We call this insider mediation in UNDP, not everybody does, but I think this type of approach is what we should be doing uh, to foster uh, change. Um, I also hope that the, the work that is happening there is also looking at the electoral process in general to ensure it's not just meeting minimal standards of freedom and fairness, but is a genuinely inclusive process. Um, and, uh, and, and I'm very happy to talk to you offline about in, in more detail about that, should it be helpful. So that's what I would hope to be seeing in a context like Nigeria, clearly in a context like Nigeria, um, that the, the UN is not the only actor that's going to influence the decisions of the government, and I would hope also, and I would really, if, if, if I was present on the ground, be working with all forms of coalitions for peace to find other actors and champions for peaceful messaging, um, including bilaterals, including regional actors. I mean, the regional actors that Darren has focused on are incredibly important, and including 
governance that is not central, but local level governance actors who want to see peace in their communities and are working strongly um, to bring about change at that level, who have, can be incredibly influential. So those are the types of actions I would hope to see, and I would hope that the UN could foster those, and we can speak offline in detail about that. In terms of stabilization, I'm I don't think I could satisfy your answer about the US and stabilization, so I can speak briefly about stabilization in general. Um, so stabilization is a favored term of a number of Western governments who want to make a bring a, a, a more securitized approach to the way that they're engaging in conflict-affected or post-conflict settings. It's frequently more palatable to parliaments who are, in general, drifting rightwards and, in general, moving away from ideas of development spe spending, but more convinced by ideas of stabilization spending. It comes often with a heavy dose of a security component and sometimes a hard security component. So it's not uncontroversial, especially with those governments who are on the receiving end of assistance that's labeled stabilization monies. At the same time, I, there are uh, some very positive things happening under the rubric of stabilization, including uh, underwriting and supporting the types of efforts we've been discussing. So the patterns of donor um, engagement through stabilization approaches is varying depending on this particular national government, but many who are finding it challenging sometimes to spend quite vast budgets that put under the label of stabilization tend to orient themselves laterally towards the types of programs that have traditionally been understood as, as development in the rule of law sector, the justice sector, security sector, local peace building approaches, uh, demobilization efforts, and so on. So it's a complicated field. The reason why it gets extremely complicated is that generally stabilization monies are run by ministries of foreign affairs as opposed to development uh, actors, and so it makes the conversations with the national counterparts uh, more complicated. Um, so stabilization can be used positively, but I think it's very important to look, think about how that looks on the receiving end of stabilization approaches. I'll stop there. Um, so I won't try and uh, comprehensively answer all the th things that came up, but I mean, just a, a couple of thoughts. I mean, I think on this question of how do you kind of uh, hold back the tide of when you can see an outbreak of immediate violence coming, electoral violence, uh, youth dissatisfaction, um, I, th I think, uh, you know, one of the really important things it can be sort of trying to build support amongst people with the power to change uh, patterns of hard security responses which often f fuel the problem. So one of the examples from our research a couple of, uh, the last couple of years is around the Garissa University attack by al-Shabaab, how that led to a moment where Kenyan political leaders and leaders in the Northeast decided to try a different approach to security provision even when things were really uh, sort of very violent with uh, a, a group that most uh, organizations and countries have designated as a terrorist organization, um, trying a different model of security provision, uh, clamping down on arbitrary arrests uh, and, 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 and torture and uh, abuse of, of youth, corruption in, in, in the police service, uh, getting uh, communities again talking to the police and restoring trust uh, really in that context took uh, counties like Garissa back from the brink. Um, then, um, you know, I think that's where also, you know, uh, 
US and other governments need to exert leverage on, on governments uh, like Nigeria and others to uh, try a different approach and, and, and not reach for those kind of tools. Um, but then I think on the question of do peace builders have the answer to local problems and need to come along and give them, I think obviously uh, most of our experience I think would reflect a role that's more about facilitation and pointing out that there are ways of working on things. There are things you can do as communities. You can play a role. In many of our contexts we've been told women can't play a role in conversations around security, but we've found it in country after country that women are the backbone of local security in protecting people during conflict, finding solutions to security challenges on the ground, and that we've been able to open up conversations where they do come and play a role and show their value in finding solutions to security problems. So I think as peace builders, it is about opening up, facilitating things to happen, but making sure that it is local actors who are working to uh, identify the solutions and deliver them. Um, on the question of the US peace conflict architecture, can I just shamelessly plug an event we have this evening um, <laughs> uh, at, at Tonic Restaurant from 5.30 to talk about rewriting the Washington playbook and the place of peace in US foreign policy. Feel free to join us for that. Thank you. Okay, so I'll start with that last one first then. Um, and I, I don't want to respond again for the U.S. government, uh, but I have heard that there are um, conflict prevention reviews underway that jointly with state and aid. So I think there are a number of good things coming out um, through the stabilization effort uh, done in, in coordination between state and aid. So again, leave it to the USG officials to elaborate on that. Um, uh, just to pick up on your point, uh, I don't want to answer now that I've got Lisa, one of the co-creators of uh, the SNAP guide, and Maria, the other one up there. So I don't want to answer for them. Uh, they have a session later on today on nonviolent action uh, and peace building. But I would even say maybe we even use a softer word than facilitate. We're completely in a supportive role, and we're often engaging with local actors who are um, um, already using these uh, nonviolent action tactics or peace building tactics. So our goal is really just to expand on the diversity of options available. It is always up to the local actors. I mean, that's, that's what we're supporting in the inclusion portfolio. It's always up to the local actors on, on what they choose. And Maria will go into research on donor support to, or external actor support to, um, uh, grassroots movements uh, as well in a, in a later session. So if you're interested in that, please attend that as well. And the last point, just quickly, because we are running out of time, uh, I, you raise an interesting point about um, preventing election violence. That's also another framework that we could potentially draw some lessons learned from uh, into our prevention um, landscape. Um, yeah. Quickly, so so Gary poses a question: How do we bring actors together? What experiences do we have bringing actors together? I want to make reference to three three examples. Uh, first, one that that uh, refers to a, yet another global framework that I think we need to put in value also, which is the international dialogue on peace building and state building and and the whole New Deal, because that framework, if there is something. Uh, unique is that it actually created space for civil society and official space in the table for civil society to participate. So I, and I think that's, that's very important. 
and the fact that, that there is a platform that facilitates the participation of civil society to play a meaningful role in that, in that space, I think that's, that's significant and that's something that can be maybe replicated for other global frameworks. How can you articulate meaningful civil society participation? And these platforms, I think they, they have a key role. Uh, another example of that is the Civil Society Dialogue Network of the European Union, for example, where they have this consultation process on specific areas with experts. But, and, and if you ask, you say, this, we could not do this without a platform that identifies who should be in particular conversations at particular moments. So these platforms help identify who the key interlocutors should be. Second example I wanted to give was, and again... We, we have to, limited time. I'm sorry. So very, very quickly, Very briefly. Uh, uh, the uh, civil military dialogues and the manual on human security that Lisa participated on how understand, basically it's a, a question of translation, understanding what the military culture is for civil society organizations, what they can do, what they cannot do, and what civil society organizations can do as well. Uh, so, um, and a brief comment about mobilizing uh, action for crisis response. Uh, we have actually, uh, right now, have an, ex an example, and we're having this discussion with some colleagues from the Swedish International Development Agency yesterday uh, about a crisis in Cameroon. Our members in Cameroon are saying, it's like, we have this crisis, there is a, you know, a, a bridge, uh, we are in, on the verge of really uh, outbreak of violence here, can you help us? We're able, as GPAC, to mobilize very quickly, in four days, a, a, a response action there. And, uh, and the lesson here, or what we were discussing with our colleagues, is like we need these partnerships by which we, at CIDA, at CIDA we are uh, mandated to do that, but we cannot mobilize so fast. But maybe we do it through you, and you help us have this crisis fund or something. You are able to facilitate that mobilization. So maybe that's something else that we can uh, think in those crises, those moments of uh, quick reaction, where quick reactions are needed. Thank you. <laughs> Great, thank you. Um, I, I'd like to take on the facilitation point. I mean, I don't think that we are neutral facilitators. There is a huge amount of evidence out there about what works, and I don't think we should be ashamed of using it. We know, for instance, that one of the fastest ways to reduce violence against women is better regulation of alcohol in communities. There's really very strong evidence of that. I would say in the United States, one of the easiest things that the 40% of states who do this practice could do to improve um, um, their relationships with young men is to stop charging young men, children, for being on probation. We, ch we, we have 40% of states that charge young men for being on probation and then chase them and their parents to repay those debts when the probation period is over. It's insanity. We, we have good evidence that that is, 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 is actually costing more than it raises. Um, we, we have experiences of countries like Georgia that have done amazing work to improve a police service that was one of the least trusted institutions in the country to one that has at least some respect from citizens. One of the things they did was to stop police stations having more than one story so that uh, um, people in police stations couldn't jump out of, uh, out of windows during interrogations. We have good evidence that things like that work. And I think we really need to marshal that evidence and use that evidence and put it at the disposal of people who have the power to make, uh, make change in different different contexts. And then I'd like to come, I mean, I, I don't know much about the State Department, but I, I do work with a lot of governments around the world, and almost every country that I work with, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is in some kind of crisis. Uh, and until we invest in ministries of foreign affairs, until we have a different kind of diplomat that is able to respond to complexity, that is able to bring together international, regional, and national actors on a, on a platform, to, is to able to construct that platform for change, then I think we're going to find it very difficult to, to cope with the uh, problems that this complex global world is throwing up for us.
Thank you. There's all this expertise in the room. We've summed it up uh, in a piece I wrote that says, context matters, but knowledge transfers. Of course, in these spaces, we need to know what's going on. And of course, it's a local solution. But we have to be able to bring in what we've learned from other experiences. And that's why all of this expertise is so useful. And it's so useful to be able to come together and share here. Uh, I, we're going to go all go to lunch. You'll see all of these people for the next couple of days. Let's continue the conversation on all of these topics. And I thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org slash podcasts. Thank you.